This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Now, undoubtedly it is, as it was in the days of John the Baptist, the axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root of the trees. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we are listening to a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. It was preached in 1741 in Connecticut. Joel, we are going to put together Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if if you're an older listener, you may have known that this episode kind of already existed in our catalog. Uh, This version you're going to listen to today is the top notch. It's one we're very proud of. uh, Updated and and improved. Yeah, and I I played just some of the audio for Joel a little while ago, and his immediate response is that. That's a powerful one right there. Yeah, uh, he's got some gravitas. the The narrator of the sermon in this in this one has he's got he's got some weight to his voice. Uh, yeah, it was just one of those things where uh, our equipment has kind of upgraded over the years, and the the show has really settled into what it is. And so we wanted to kind of refresh centers in the hands of an angry god and make that available for for future years, future listeners to come across. Absolutely. So there will be some references to a different episode of Jonathan Edwards here. That's because we've also done another sermon of his called Pardon for Greatest Sinners. It is an excellent sermon, and we do highly recommend you go check that one out as well, maybe after you're done listening to this one. Definitely. Yeah, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Probably, I'd say the most iconic, notable sermon title uh, that exists, especially in America, right? Absolutely. You just hear that. And, and 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 I think a lot of us today we hear angry God and we just whoa hey whoa mm. I don't I don't know if I like the way that sounds yeah. it makes you immediately puts you in a weird place and and this sermon is a powerful sermon because it just puts you in immediately in a place where you're going to hear about God and hear honestly about hell and things that honestly modern Christians don't preach on certainly don't preach on in this way and yeah I think it's a really good sermon because I think sometimes it is important for us to hear. God uh, spoken about in this way. And so that's why we wanted to bring this sermon back to you and let you hear it again this way. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards, born in the year 1703. And you got to put yourself back in the mindset of America in the early 1700s. This is the generation that comes after the generation that lived with the Salem witch trials. Yeah, a lot of people don't realized that after the Salem witch trials, America kind of took a step back from its religious fervor a bit and kind of entered a, a state of growing cold towards their walk with God. And and this is what Jonathan Edwards is growing up in and around. It will eventually culminate in what we realize now, looking back, is the Great Awakening of America. And as many of you know, Jonathan Edwards was a huge part of being a part of that Great Awakening in America, that revival that spread across the country. 
And I, I know that we say this a lot on the show, but if you want to hear a great episode on the Salem Witch Trials, we have done a deep dive on that subject, and we recommend you go check it out. I guess that we say a lot of these things because we've done a lot of content at this point. Uh, we have talked in the past about Jonathan Edwards' family life, living with his sisters, his father, his grandfather, his school, but that's not really what I wanted to focus about because Sinners in the Hands of an Anger God is just so deeply tied to that great awakening and the impact of this particular sermon on that generation and and generations to come. Now, many in his era were, were getting drawn towards deism. Deism was overemphasizing science and giving it too much credence as the way everything was, and it was really beginning to influence people, and it was very effective at influencing people in America at this time. Edwards, however, studied science a lot as well, but he came to this opposite conclusion in his study and love of science growing up. He loved studying science because for him, studying science was not about rejecting God, but enjoying the earth that God had created. This made him one of the most well-educated and scientific theologians in America at that time. Yeah, in the 1730s, Jonathan Edward began to get his name out there as he preached from his hometown in Northampton, Massachusetts. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in, I guess, I guess for me it was the Midwest in Sunday school and hearing about Jonathan Edwards, you kind of have this stigma. You've probably heard the, the idea that he kind of spoke with this monotone voice that kind of was a little bit unsettling and kind of really drove home his sermons and, and kind of struck some fear into the people uh, as, you know, someone talking about hell in a, in a loud monotone voice. You can imagine that being somewhat somewhat unsettling. And by all means, there's a lot of evidence and, and testimonies about him kind of having that demeanor, but Troy has a little bit of pushback on that concept there. We have a little bit of debate, a little bit of, <laughs> a little behind the scenes here at Revive Thought Studios, yeah. a little bit of a, a little bit of fun uh, debate, fun back and forth about, you know, what was his preaching style actually like? Yeah, I, in my opinion, from my research, I actually was blown away. The first time I heard that Jonathan Edwards preached this in monotone, I was like, there's no way you could not do that in monotone. I mean, just reading it, it impacts you too much. How could you possibly do that? After research on my end, I found good reasons to believe that the monotone <laughs> preaching of Jonathan Edwards is a bit of a myth. Uh, some of the evidence against this idea was that his grandfather actually had preached sermons against that kind of preaching, was very much a very lively, animated preacher, and he said that that's the way preaching was supposed to be. Another evidence was that the entire awakening was about personal preaching that got the audience feeling something and about coming to faith and having a big conversion moment. And there was a lot of, you know, shout and yelling and strong feelings. And Jonathan Edwards being one of the leaders of that movement, he would have been the also the one exception to that movement. Also a preacher who kind of was an up and coming underneath him, kind of a, uh, his, he was the mentor to him. Samuel Hopkins uh, once wrote in his diary, uh, Sunday, July 24th, 1743, heard Mr. Edwards preach all day, had been very dull and senseless, much discouraged about preaching, but hearing Mr. Edwards makes me ashamed of myself. That's not exactly something you say if you just listen to hours of mo monotonous preaching, so I think there's at least a case to be made that the monotonous sure. preaching thing is maybe it's, a myth. It's definitely... It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the context of yeah. the Great Awakening. I guess, well, I mean, once we get to heaven, we'll know for sure. <laughs> we'll ask him. Well, and, yeah. and the one thing I think, the reason I think people like the monotonous myth, the idea that he was just monotone, is it makes us all feel better that anybody can use it. You know, the greatest preacher that maybe ever lived, one of the one of the top-notch guys of American history, well, he had a pretty monotonous, gentle voice. Um, and I think that makes people feel good. So th that's, I think, one of the reasons why it kind of got so explosively uh, propagated. Interesting theory there, Troy. <laughs> I'll point out, though, that it is only a theory That's true. at the heart of it. 
but fun to theorize nonetheless, for sure. In the 1730s and 1740s, uh, America was swept into the Great Awakening, and it, the Great Awakening, you can kind of look at it, it was built on the decades prior to that, because there were revivals going on in the 1710s and 1720s, but they weren't getting much press, they weren't really picking up speed, but slowly but surely over the years, uh, it finally began to stick, and it finally began to grab a hold of not only the country, but the world. When, when the 1730s rolled around, America, Britain, Wales, Scotland, they were all going through kind of similar patterns of revival. In America, Jonathan Edwards' preaching and revivals took his town, and in 1735, so much so much of his town was caught up in revival that the, the city was worried how that might affect the economy, you know, would would businesses go bankrupt just because people were shifting their focus onto the realm of eternity. And the city officials were wondering how that might affect everyday life of economics there, which is an interesting uh, analysis of that. And it, analyzing stuff like that is what Jonathan Edwards loved to do with his free time. Troy kind of mentioned the scientific side of Edwards and how he would love to to analyze and collect data and he did on specifically people's I don't want to say conversions but people's changes of heart how how God changed people and how that affected their lives afterwards he was known for writing down a lot of statistics and, and kind of keeping track of what is the effects that God has in people's lives over long term which is kind of kind of neat it's neat it's really different because you usually think of science and faith as like almost removed from one another and here Jonathan Edwards is going in with like a like a clipboard and a, yeah. you know a pen <laughs> in my mind with a lab coat on and being like and how did you feel afterwards and how long has it been since yeah. you said I'm sure that's not what it is but it's just this idea that I'm going to scientifically approach and measure what God is doing here to remember it and learn from it and I thought that was just again really interesting not something you see a lot of uh, the response to his preaching as one pastor put it it was a very frequent thing to see a house full of crying fainting convulsions and so much so that there was distress but also admiration and joy and this is actually one of the aspects that i found most interesting in all of the revivals we've kind of talked about on revived thoughts and revived radio it comes up now and then uh, whether it's andrew murray in south america duncan campbell in scotland in the 1950s there is and here in jonathan edwards in the 1700s there's this common thread of people being powerfully moved during these revivals and it's just emotionally kind of taking over their bodies a little bit they're physically affected by this and it's not really a matter of theology it's not calvinist arminian charismatic or presbyterian the same thing connects them all during these moments now detractors would call all this great awakening stuff wrong there were people who were saying they think all this excitement is actually a problem it's just emotionalism you're not really saving them this is they're just going to get caught up in a wave and then give up this thing you know it's going to be salem witch trials part two if you keep it up and they thought that this hellfire and brimstone preaching of jonathan edwards was just going way too far and this came to a head uh a little bit later when Jonathan Edwards, his own uncle, jo Joseph Hawley, sadly afraid he could never be saved after listening to a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, uh, committed suicide. Yeah, pretty pretty dark stuff, pretty dark moment in uh, in his life there. And we don't really know for sure what was going through Hawley's mind, but the people blame Jonathan Edwards' 
preaching, uh, and it really had a big effect. It, you know, that, revi- that revival that was going on in his hometown of Northampton uh, began to fade away, and it kind of made people kind of think twice about the effects that uh, that his preaching had on people. It's, it's important to note that Jonathan Edwards, he was not a, a perfect man by any means. He did own slaves for starts. He was also more of a theologian than a pastor. You know, a pastor is someone who's personal, cares about people, works with people. Samuel Hawkins said that Edwards spent a lot of time preaching and teaching and writing, and he was and he was good at these things, but not so much time visiting the sick or checking on his congregation, you know, doing the things that, that pastors are supposed to do. And this would actually cause him trouble years later when a church would eventually fire him, kick him out. Mm-hmm. And when he appealed to them, there wasn't a lot that sided with him because they they didn't feel that personal connection to them. Again, he's he's a smart man, uh, but he lacks kind of that personal aspect yeah. to it for sure. And the, but the revivals uh, that stopped here after the suicide and kind of picked back up in 1739-1740. George Whitfield, famous preacher and leader of revivals back in Europe that we've had on the show a few times, uh, he had heard about the revivals in America and wanted to come and help. His first sermon preached at Edwards Church and. It cost Edward. It just caused Edwards to weep and just realize I need to go back to what I was doing before. Him and a team of preachers, and sometimes including Whitfield, began touring around the area. When they reached Enfield, Enfield, Connecticut, the place where we're going to hear this sermon, the legend is that they were not even supposed to preach that day. At least, not Jonathan Edwards. He was not slated. But whether or not that's true, one thing that we do really know is that Enfield had resisted every revival attempt at it. The people there were disinterested. They were not. They were not there for that emotionalism stuff at all. In fact, they said that when the preacher said when they got there, people were kind of rude to them and just not, they weren't even, t- they were talking around them. There was people having conversations during the sermons that nobody had resisted this awakening like the people of Enfield did. During the se- sermon, People who had ignored the other preachers became focused, and people started shouting and actually interrupting Jonathan Edwards, saying, like, you can't keep going. This is too much. Um, they asked him to stop. Like, we're, we we feel too overwhelmed by our sins to keep listening to this sermon. By the end of it, so many people were crying out and asking God to save them and, and wanting to be saved by listening to this sermon, that he actually never finished the full sermon. We have the transcript, um, and he had preached it other places, but this version of it was never actually fully finished that day. He just couldn't keep going. The crowd was too emotional and too beaten up by their sins. Uh, From here, Edwards would go on and have this crazy life where he'd get removed from his church and become a big missionary and all these different things. But I think it's hard to deny that sinners in the hands of an angry God is in one one of the ways, one of the biggest parts of his legacy. And we said it earlier, I want to say it again as we're going into this sermon. This is a tough sermon. It is not always the easiest sermon to listen to because, yes, he's talking about hell and how we are sinners before God. But I really do think sometimes we need to hear those tough sermons to remind ourselves that life is serious and we are going to be before God one day. Deuteronomy 28 to 35, for they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. 
Verse 32, For their vine is as a vine of Sodom, and the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of asps. To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Their foot shall slide in due time. And this verse is threatened, the vengeance of God on the wicked unbelieving Israelites, who were God's visible people, and who lived under the means of grace, but who, notwithstanding all God's wonderful works towards them, remained, is verse 28, void of counsel, having no understanding in them. And are all the cultivations of heaven they brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit, is in the two verses next preceding the text. The expression I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time, seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction to which these wicked Israelites were exposed. 1. That they were always exposed to destruction. As one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. is implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them, being represented by their foot sliding. The same is expressed. Surely, you did set them in slippery places, you cast them down into destruction. Number two, it implies that they were always exposed to a sudden unexpected destruction. As he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall. He cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in, Surely you did set them in slippery places, you cast them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? Is in a moment. Number three. Another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves being thrown down by the hand of another. As he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. Number four, that the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall, as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but he will let them go. And then, at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction. As he that stands on such slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit, he cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the least degree, or in any respect whatsoever, any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. 
The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. 1. There is no lack of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel, who has found means to fortify himself, and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken in pieces. There is great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth. So it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easy is it for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him at whose rebuke the earth trembles, and before whom the rocks are thrown down. Number two, they deserve to be cast into hell, so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Luke 13, verse 7. The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. Number three, they are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down there, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind, is gone out against them and stands against them, so that they are bound over already to hell. He that believes not is condemned already, so that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. That is his place. From thence he is, John 8, verse 23, you are from beneath, and there he is bound. It is a place that justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law assigned to him. Number four, they are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God in whose power they are is not then very angry with them as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who there feel and bear the fierceness of its wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth, yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, who may be at ease, than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. 
so that it is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it, that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such an one as themselves, though they imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit has opened its mouth under them. Number five, the devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own at what moment God shall permit him. They belong to him. He has their souls in his possession and under his dominion. The scriptures represent them as his goods. Luke eleven twelve. The devils watched them. They're ever by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them. Like greedy, hungry lions, they see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. If God should withdraw his hand by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor souls. The old serpent is gaping for them. Hell opens its mouth wide to receive them. And if God should permit it, they would be hastily swallowed up and lost. Number six. There are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle and flame out into hell fire if it were not for God's restraints. There is laid in the very nature of carnal men a foundation for the torments of hell. There are those corrupt principles and reigning power in them and in full possession of them that are the seeds of hell fire. These principles are active and powerful, exceeding violent in their nature, and if it were not for the restraining hand of God upon them, they would soon break out. They would flame out after the same manner as the same corruptions, the same enmity does in the hearts of damned souls, and would beget the same torments as they do in them. The souls of the wicked are in Scripture compared to the troubled sea, in Isaiah 57, verse 20. For the present, God restrains their wickedness by his mighty power, as he does the raging waves of the troubled sea, saying, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. But if God should withdraw that restraining power, it would soon carry all before it. Sin is a ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive in its nature. And if God should leave it without restraint, there would need nothing else to make the soul perfectly miserable. The corruption of the heart of man is a moderate and boundless in its fury. And while wicked men live here, it is like fire pent up by God's restraints. Whereas if it were let loose, it would set on fire the course of nature. And as the heart is now a sink of sin, so if sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven, or a furnace of fire and brimstone. Number seven. It is no security to wicked men for one moment that there are no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health, and that he does not see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident, and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. 
The manifold and continual experience of the world in all ages shows this is no evidence that a man is not on the very brink of eternity, and that the next step will not be into another world. The unseen, unthought of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over to the pit of hell on a rotten covering. There are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they will not bear their weight. These places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different, unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell, that there is nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at the expense of a miracle, or go out of the ordinary course of his providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. All the means there are of sinners going out of the world are so in God's hands and so universally and absolutely subject to his power and determination that it does not depend it all the less on the mere will of God, other sinners shall at any moment go to hell, than if means were never made use of or at all concerned in the case. Number 8. Natural men's prudence and care to preserve their own lives or the care of others to preserve them do not secure them a moment. To this divine providence and universal experience do also bear testimony. There is this clear evidence that men's own wisdom is no security to them from death, that if it were otherwise we should see some difference between the wise and politic men of the world and others with regard to their liableness to early and unexpected death. But how is it, in fact? How dieth a wise man, even as a fool? Number 9. O wicked men's pains and contrivance, which they used to escape hell while they continued to reject Christ, and so remain wicked men, do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done, and what he is now doing, or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. They hear indeed that there are but few saved and that the greater part of men that have died heretofore are gone to hell. But each one imagines that he lays out matters better for his own escape than others have done. He does not intend to come to that place of torment. He says within himself that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as not to fail. But the foolish children of men miserably delude themselves in their own schemes and in confidence in their own strength and wisdom. But they trust nothing but a shadow the greater part of those who heretofore have lived under the same means of grace and are now dead are undoubtedly gone to hell, and it was not because they were not as wise as those who are now alive. It was not because they did not lay out matters as well for themselves to secure their own escape. If we could speak with them and inquire them one by one, whether they expected when alive, and when they used to hear about hell, ever to be the subjects of misery, we doubtless should hear one another reply, No, I never intended to come here.
I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I did not look for it at that time, and in that manner it came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness! I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was, say, in peace and safety, then sudden destruction came upon me. Number 10. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. God certainly has made no promises, either of eternal life or of any deliverance or preservation from eternal death, but what are contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yea and amen. But surely they have no interest in the promises of the covenant of grace, who are not the children of the covenant, not believe in any of the promises, and have no interest in the mediator of the covenant." so that whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, it is plain and manifest that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction, so that thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell, they have deserved a fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up. One moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them, the flames gather and flash about them, and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pent up in their own hearts is struggling to break out, and they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of, all that preserves them every moment is a mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. Application The use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ, that world of misery, that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is a dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. You probably are not sensible of this. You find you are kept out of hell, but do not see the hand of God in it. But look at other things, as a good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, 
These things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, it would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. For wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. The creation groans with you. The creature is made subject to the bondage of your corruption, not willingly. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light, to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for breath to maintain the flame of life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemies. God's creatures are good and were made for men to serve God with and do not willingly subserve to any other purpose and groan when they are abused to purposes so directly contrary to their nature and end. And the world would spit you out were it not for the sovereign hand of him who is subjected in an hope. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise it would come with fury, and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned. For the present, they increase more and more, and rise higher and higher, till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course, and once it is let loose. It is true. The judgment against your evil works has not been executed before this. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. You are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury, and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were ten thousand times greater than it is, yea, ten thousand times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on a string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart, and strains the bow, 
and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all of you that never passed under a great change of heart, by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again, and made new creatures, and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life, are in the hands of an angry God. However you may have reformed your life in many things, and may have had religious affections, and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God, it is nothing but his mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may now be of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you see that it was so with them, for destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety, now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes and a bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you were allowed to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending a solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread, with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator, and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing that you have ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. And consider here more particularly whose wrath it is. It is the wrath of the infinite God. 
If it were only the wrath of man, though it were of the most potent prince, it would be comparatively little to be regarded. The wrath of kings is very much dreaded, especially of absolute monarchs who have the possessions and lives of their subjects wholly in their power to be disposed of at their mere will. The fear of a king is as a roaring of a lion who so provokes him to anger sins against his own soul. The subject that very much enrages an arbitrary prince is liable to suffer the most extreme torments that human art can invent or human power can inflict. But the greatest earthly potentates in their greatest majesty and strength and when closed in their greatest terrors are but feeble, despicable worms of the dust in comparison of the great and almighty creator and king of heaven and earth. It is but little that they can do when most enraged, and when they have exerted the utmost of their fury. All the kings of the earth before God are his grasshoppers. They are nothing and less than nothing, both their love and their hatred is to be despised. The wrath of the great king of kings is as much more terrible than theirs, as his majesty is greater. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more than they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear, fear him which after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Number two, it is the fierceness of his wrath that you were exposed to. We often read of the fury of God, as in according to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries. So, for behold, the Lord will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire and in many other places. So we read of the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The words are exceeding terrible if it had only been said the wrath of God. The words would have implied that which is infinitely dreadful but it is the fierceness and wrath of God, the fury of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful must that be! Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? It is also the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, as though there would be a very great manifestation of His almighty power and what the fierceness of its wrath should inflict, as though omnipotence should be, as it were, enraged and exerted, as men are wont to exert their strength in the fierceness of their wrath. Oh, then, what will be the consequence? What will become of the poor worm that shall suffer it? whose hands can be strong and whose heart can endure to what a dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must a poor creature be sunk who shall be the subject of this. Consider this, you that are here present, that yet remain in an unregenerate state, that God will execute the fierceness of his anger implies 
that he will inflict wrath without any pity. When God beholds the ineffable extremity of your case and sees your torment to be so vastly disproportioned to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion upon you. He will not forbear the executions of its wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There shall be no moderation or mercy, nor will God then at all stay his rough wind. He will have no regard to your welfare, nor be at all careful, lest he should suffer too much in any other sense, than only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld, because it is so hard for you to bear. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. Though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. Now God stands ready to pity you. This is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy. But when once a day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and dolorous cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost and thrown away of God, as to any regard to your welfare. God will have no other use to put you to but to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end, for you will be a vessel of wrath, fitted to destruction. And there will be no other use of this vessel but to be filled full of wrath. God will be so far from pitying you when you cry to him, that it is said he will only laugh and mock. Proverbs 1, 25, 26, and so on. How awful are those words, which are the words of the great God. I will tread them in mine anger, and will trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. It is perhaps impossible to conceive of words that carry in them greater manifestations of these three things, namely, contempt and hatred and fierceness of indignation. If you cried to God to pity you, he will be so far from pitying you in your doleful case or showing you the least regard or favor that instead of that, he will only tread you underfoot and though he will know that you cannot bear the weight of omnipotence treading upon you, yet he will not regard that, but he will crush you under his feet without mercy. He will crush out your blood and make it fly, and it shall be sprinkled on his garments, so as to stain all his raiment. He will not only hate you, but he will have you in the utmost contempt. No place shall be thought fit for you, but under his feet, to be trodden down as a mire of the streets. Number three. The misery you are exposed to is that which God will inflict to that end, that he might show what the wrath of Jehovah is. God has had it on his heart to show to angels and men both how excellent his love is and also how terrible his wrath is. Sometimes earthly kings have a mind to show how terrible their wrath is by the extreme punishments they would execute on those that would provoke them. 
Nebuchadnezzar, that mighty and haughty monarch of the Chaldean Empire, was willing to show his wrath when enraged with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and accordingly gave orders that the burning, fiery furnace should be heated seven times hotter than it was before. Doubtless it was raised to the utmost degree of fierceness that human art could raise it. But the great God is also willing to show his wrath and magnify his awful majesty and mighty power and the extreme sufferings of his enemies. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And seeing this is his design and what he has determined, even to show how terrible the unrestrained wrath the fury and fierceness of Jehovah is, he will do it to effect. There will be something accomplished and brought to pass that will be dreadful with a witness. When the great and angry God has risen up and executed his awful vengeance on the poor sinner, and the wretch is actually suffering the infinite weight and power of his indignation, then will God call upon the whole universe to behold that awful majesty and mighty power that is to be seen in it. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime. If thorns cut up, they be burnt in the fire. Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Thus it will be with you, that are in an unconverted state, if you continue in it. The infinite might and majesty and terribleness of the omnipotent God shall be magnified upon you. In the ineffable strength of your torments, you shall be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And when you shall be in the state of suffering, the glorious inhabitants of heaven shall go forth and look on that awful spectacle, that they may see what the wrath and fierceness of the Almighty is. And when they have seen it, they will fall down and adore that great power and majesty. And it shall come to pass, that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. And they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Number four. It is an everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment. But you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul, and you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages, and wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then when you are so done, 
when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains, so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is? All that we can possibly say about it gives but a very feeble, faint representation of it. It is inexpressible and inconceivable, for who knows the power of God's anger? How dreadful is the state of those that are daily and hourly in the danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But this is a dismal case of every soul in this congregation that has not been born again, however moral and strict, sober and religious they may otherwise be. Oh, that you would consider it, whether you be young or old. There is reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be the subjects of this misery to all eternity. We know not who they are, or in what seats they sit, or what thoughts they now have. It may be they are now at ease, and hear all these things without much disturbance, and are now flattering themselves that they are not the persons, promising themselves that they shall escape. If we knew that there was one person, and but one, and the whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing would it be to think of, if we knew who it was? What an awful sight would it be to see such a person? How might all the rest of the congregation lift up a lamentable and pitter cry over him? But alas, instead of one, how many is it likely will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time, even before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health, quiet and secure, should be there before tomorrow morning. Those of you that finally continue in a natural condition that shall keep out of hell the longest will be there in a little time. Your damnation does not slumber. It will come swiftly, and in all probability very suddenly upon many of you. You have reason to wonder that you are not already in hell. It is doubtless the case of some, whom you have seen and known, that never deserved hell more than you, and that before this appeared as likely to have been alive as you. Their case has passed all hope. They are crying in extreme misery and perfect despair. But here you are in the land of the living, and in the house of God, and have an opportunity to obtain salvation. What would not those poor, damned, hopeless souls give for one day's opportunity, such as you now enjoy? And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day in which Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open, and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners, a day in which many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state, with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood, 
and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. How awful is it to be left behind at such a day, to see so many others feasting while you are pining and perishing, to see so many rejoicing and singing for joy of heart, while you have cause to mourn for sorrow of heart and howl for vexation of spirit. How can you rest one moment in such a condition? Are not your souls as precious as the souls of the people at Suffield, where they are flocking from day to day to Christ? Are there not many here who have lived long in the world, and are not to this day born again, and so are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and have done nothing ever since they have lived, but treasure up wrath against the day of wrath? Oh, sirs, your case, and in a special manner, is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. Do you not see how generally persons of your years are passed over and left in the present remarkable and wonderful dispensation of God's mercy? You had need to consider yourselves and await thoroughly out of sleep. You cannot bear the fierceness and wrath of the infinite God. You young men and young women, will you neglect this precious season which you now enjoy when so many others of your age are renouncing all youthful vanities and flocking to Christ? You especially have now an extraordinary opportunity, but if you neglect it, it will soon be with you as with those persons who spent all the precious days of youth in sin and are now come to such a dreadful pass and blindness and hardness. And you children, who are unconverted, do not you know that you are going down to hell to bear the dreadful wrath of that God who is now angry with you every day and every night? Will you be content to be the children of the devil when so many other children in the land are converted and are become the holy and happy children of the King of Kings, and let every one that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men or women, or middle aged, or young people, or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of such great favor to some, will doubtless be a day of as remarkable vengeance. To others. Men's hearts harden, and their guilt increases apace at such a day as this, if they neglect their souls. And never was there so great danger of such persons being given up to hardness of heart and blindness of mind. God seems now to be hastily gathering in his elect in all parts of the land, and probably the greater part of adult persons that ever shall be saved will be brought in now in a little time, and that it will be as it was on the great outpouring of the Spirit upon the Jews in the Apostles' days. The election will obtain it, and the rest will be blinded. If this should be the case with you, you will eternally curse this day, and will curse the day that ever you were born, to see such a season of the pouring out of God's Spirit and will wish that you had died and gone to hell before you had seen it. Now, undoubtedly it is, as it was in the days of John the Baptist. The axe is in an extraordinary manner laid at the root 
of the trees, that every tree which brings not forth good fruit may be hewn down, cast into the fire. Therefore let every one that is out of Christ now awaken and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. There's not really a lot anybody can say after. I'm not going to try and say I have a spotlight that you may have missed. That, look, Jonathan Edwards said it all pretty much. I would just encourage you to not just walk around with guilt after hearing a sermon like that or just let it be an emotional moment like some people may have done with the Great Awakening and then forget about it. But ask God, seriously ask God, what is it you need to hear and learn from a sermon like that? And how should you change your life after really thinking about eternity and how close we all really are to it in every minute of our life. That, that's my only recommendation is just don't walk away from that sermon without having it affect you at all. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Tom Sullivan. Tom recently retired from the Postal Service where he has worked since 1994. He began narrating sermons December of 1985 for the Chapel Library where it was in Venice, Florida. He teaches American church history and the theology of Christian experiences. He has lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 31 years and has been a Reformed Baptist since 1984. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts. We highly recommend you check out our new show, Martyrs and Missionaries. It's doing very well. We're really uh, surprised. People have been really enjoying it. It's gotten a lot of great feedback, and we think you will enjoy it too. Go check it out. It's got a few episodes out now, and we'll have a few more maybe by the time you've listened to this. Also, if you liked this episode of Revive Thoughts, we highly encourage you to share it. This is, I mean, one of those sermons that you never know who might by listening to the sermon, be very much impacted and change the way they live their lives. We don't claim any credit for that. We know it's Jonathan Edwards and, the, and a really good narrator did that, but we do encourage you to share it because hopefully God can use it to change people even to this day. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by The In-Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On The In-Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.